The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. Unfortunately, Kobus is unable to join us today uh, because he has a series of very important meetings that he had to attend and couldn't get out of. I tried to pull him out, but we couldn't get him out of it. But through the magic of technology, he will be joining us later in the show with some pre-recorded questions for our guest today. Hey, one very quick note before we get started. This is our first show as part of the SubChina network. For those of you who are not familiar with SubChina, uh, it's really one of the best sources that covers China and all things China. It's fantastic. Uh, we're just so proud that this podcast is now a part of that network. And we're working with Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldkorn uh, from the Seneca podcast. Uh, really, if you're not listening to Seneca and you are missing out something important, which is the definitive go-to podcast for China. Uh, so we're just thrilled to be a part of that. We'll have more about what's going on with SubChina later in a few weeks. But for today... We're going to talk tech. Now, tech was one of the big stories of 2019 and will definitely be a defining issue this year as well. And so let's just start with the numbers, because in so many ways, the numbers tell the story of China's dominance in the African tech sector in phones. Uh, there's some Q3 numbers from 2019 that came from IDG. Transcend's brands. Now, Transcend, for those of you not familiar is the Shenzhen-based mobile phone company that is really a phenomenon. It uh, went public uh, on a Shanghai stock exchange. The star market last year raised, uh, got a valuation of $7 billion on its IPO. Transcend's brands, which include Techno, Infinix, and Itel, many brands that people in China, certainly in the U.S., have no idea who they are, uh, but they dominate in Africa. Listen to this. In the feature phone market, they have a combined unit share of 60 Nokia was second in line with just 10%. Now, that's in feature phones. In smartphones, Transcend is number one as well with 36%. Samsung is 23%, and Huawei comes in third at 11%. So double-digit lead over Samsung. You don't see that in too many other parts of the world where Apple and Samsung are obviously so dominant. Now, it's not just in hardware. It's now going into the app space and the services space. So let's take a look at a service called Boomplay. Many people outside of Africa also are unfamiliar with Boomplay, but if you have a phone in Africa and you are probably one of 62 million customers across the continent who are subscribers to Boomplay, phenomenal. Now Boomplay is actually expanding beyond Africa into Europe and into North America to target Francophone speakers there, the diaspora African population. So it is going global. Uh, this is one of the only markets in the world where Spotify is getting trounced. Spotify is only available in five African markets. And Boomplay, which is Transin and NetEase, two Chinese companies, Transin, of course, that phone company, uh, they are behind that. Now, venture capital. Last year was an incredible venture capital story. Let's see, we're talking about $240 million of VC funding came from 15 different Chinese investors, uh, putting money for the first time we're seeing now into non-Chinese companies. Now, in the past... When Chinese investors went abroad, they would put money into other Chinese companies or people that they knew in their network. Now we saw in Lorry Systems in Kenya, which was a transportation play, 
Uh, they got a Series A round. Uh, some of the estimates were between 15 and, thir- 15 and $30 million for that. Chinese investors in that. Opay in Nigeria, Pompeii. Uh, these are fintechs out of Nigeria. We're going to talk more about fintech today as well. All getting very, very big seeds uh, from Chinese investors. Opera, the mobile phone company, speaking of Opay, which is the Opera Pay, second most popular browser on the mobile platforms in Africa. So again, dominance. Finally, let's go, and I mean, I can keep going for statistics now on what's going on here for the next 35 minutes. I won't do it. Last one I want to talk about, start times. Now, we don't think of that in the context of a traditional tech play, but this is a company that has 30 million users in 37 different African countries. They're doing both DTV and OTT, so direct TV and over-the-top, over-the-top being, of course, internet delivery or mobile phone delivery of, of, of TV services. 30 million subscribers. Really, it's incredible. The big one out there that we haven't talked about, of course, is Huawei. Huawei, of course, built about 70% of Africa's 4G network. They're now also doing 5G installations across the continent in some of the more advanced markets. But I think you get the point here that the Chinese are now the dominant tech player in key parts of Africa's digital ecosystem and increasingly now in the finance part of it as well. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It's hard to find people who know both the African landscape in the digital and tech market and the Chinese space. That is actually a nexus that we don't find too many people. One person is Stephanie Zhu, who is the founder of the China Africa Tech Initiative. She's been involved in tech in both China and now in Africa for so many years, uh, in fintech, in cryptocurrency, in digital marketing. And this is the first time we go back quite a ways. And I assumed that she had been on the show many times. And in fact, she hasn't. So Stephanie, Welcome to the China and Africa podcast for the first time. We're so glad to have you join us from London. Thank you so much, Eric. It's a pleasure to finally be on. Eric has been trying to get me on the show <laughs> yeah, for so long. It took a long time, but I think the timing is great to start off 2020 with you on to help us kind of set the stage for what we're looking at now in the tech space in Africa. It really feels like in the second half of 2019, something changed, like a critical mass and momentum started to build up, not just for what the Chinese are doing in Africa, but for the African tech space as a whole. So you work mostly out of Nairobi, but you travel all over the continent. You are in the fintech space. You do a lot of cryptocurrency. You get to interact with a lot of people. Let's start our conversation at the 10,000 meter, 30,000 foot level where are we right now? What's going on? What triggered all of this excitement in the African tech space that will then lead into where what the Chinese are doing? 2019 was a huge year because I think a lot of things crystallized all at once, not just within Africa, but also within China. So the, the Chinese VC market crashing obviously made a really big difference when it came to uh, potential companies that these VCs that still had money could actually go and invest in. Um, I think that you know for the past you know five five ish years uh, in East Africa, even in West Africa, there's this huge growth of these startups uh, that a lot of Western VCs uh, have been starting to invest in. Uh, well, first it was a, a stage of kind of grants and. Um, NGOs and those kinds of uh, social impact or 
uh, more development fund organizations that were funding these kinds of companies. Then we moved more into like pure VC from coming from the West. And now finally, we have more of the VCs coming from the East, but it's been this you know, s- gradual growth of the, the startup and the tech wor- scene um, in East Africa and, and Nigeria, uh, predominantly Nigeria so far, but then you see it growing um, in all of the other regions as, as well. And so I think those things coming together, the, the crash of the, of, of the VC market in China, as well as this like, you know, explosion of like hitting a, a critical mass point in uh, startups in Africa really came together to make a perfect mix for these Chinese uh, cus- Chinese VCs to be ready to actually invest. One of the theories that's circulating out there about the Chinese interest in African tech plays, uh, particularly from the VCs, is that the U.S. and Europe now are becoming increasingly closed to the Ch- to Chinese investors in the tech space. So Chinese money now has to go somewhere. The Chinese market itself is saturated. It's slowing down. So looking for new areas of growth, Chinese VCs are now exploring things that they never would have considered five years ago. And that kind of was the, you know, so I think about the, the Lorry Systems investment by uh, Crystal Stream, I think it was. And, and again, these guys don't have any connection to it like they would have, say, five years ago. Again, my friend works there, so I'll invest. Sure, fine. But that wasn't the case in Lorry Streams. They, they invested in Lorry, uh, in Lorry Systems because it was a good investment in their view. Is that because of the U.S.-China trade war and what's going on with the U.S. that the investors now from China are looking to Africa because of necessity? I think this trend uh, started maybe you know two or three years ago. Even um, just the beginning kernels of it, you start seeing large Chinese funds going into Southeast Asia, and I think from Southeast Asia, which had a very similar. Uh, very similar dem- demographic as China does, uh, very similar kinds of mobile penetration. And in, in certain ways, it's close to home, right? So so that was comfortable for them to leave China to start investing in, you know, a lot of the more or less like, you know, satellite countries around that area. Um, then they started actually, I would say like last year, looking a lot into the Middle East. So another... Um, big investment was into Swivel this year, um, and that was MSA Capital, which is you know traditionally quite a big you know billion dollar fund in Beijing, uh, and they participated in in Swivel, which is a Egyptian transport startup. Um, they did a it doesn't they didn't disclose how much in the Series B, but it was a total series of forty two million, so quite a big um, investment. And you can see that there's a couple of other Chinese investors have taken stakes in other Middle Eastern e-commerce sites. Uh, so e-commerce, once again, something that they're very comfortable in. So we're still seeing that uh, these Chinese investors are investing, maybe not in people they know, but still in industries they know. So I wouldn't say, I, I would say this is maybe accelerated by uh, the U.S.-China trade war, by kind of these geopolitical movements. But, uh, but you know, this is a trend that has already been starting. Uh, Chinese investors has been, have been looking outside of China for quite a while um, in the last two, three years. And then, you know, it seems like a organic growth from Southeast Asia into the Middle East and then finally moving down into Africa. They're kind of like slowly moving away 
moving further away both geographically and culturally and I think as they have successes in each one of the the previous regions they feel a little bit more confident to be six that they'll be successful in the next region and that's kind of what's prompting them to go on it's interesting that you say that they're investing in things that they know and when we look back at the Chinese development history uh, one of the areas is infrastructure obviously that's something over the past uh, 30, 40 years that the Chinese have done exceptionally well, and they're bringing that expertise to Africa to build roads, ports, bridges, you name it, but also now in the digital infrastructure space, uh, bandwidth, that's what Huawei, ZTE, some of these companies are doing. Uh, but more recently in China, it's been all about uh, mobile money, fintech, uh, e-commerce, uh, moving people, money, ideas, and data around are things that people know. So as I said at the top of the show, unfortunately, Cobus wasn't able to join us today, but he is here in spirit. And we asked him to record a couple questions in advance. And, uh, you know, Stephanie, his first question is about fintech, which is right up your alley. So let's hear what uh, what Kobus has to say. Some of the recent Chinese venture capital investments have focused on African financial technology startups. Um, why do you think African fintech is interesting to Chinese investors now? So... It's it's interesting because so I work in a very specific fintech space. I work in the B2B fintech space. Um, the the company I work for, Aza, does cross-border payments uh, in, out, and around Africa. And one of our big markets uh, is the – one of our big corridors is the China-Africa corridor. But if you look at the kinds of companies that Chinese investors have invested in uh, within fintech in – in Africa, the the two big ones are Ope, right, and the and Pompe. So Ope, is, I, I would still consider these. These are not within the same league that Lori Systems is in because Opera, uh, despite you know having Western roots, is actually now owned by uh, Zhou Yaohui, uh, who is a very large uh, Chinese kind of star of the of the Chinese tech world. Um, and he, it has been no small feat in his fundraising. You know, Ope raised um, 120, uh, they raised, Ope raised $50 million uh, in their Series A, which was in July, and they raised another $120 million in their Series B, which was in November. Right, and it is unheard of that you raise a Series A and a Series B so closely together, you know, for a total of 170 million in Africa. That's just unheard of, and and that's you know really only possible because Zhou Yaohui is such a rock star in the Chinese tech world, and you know all of these big uh, IDG, Sequoia, everybody's willing to come on because they trust him and they trust his bets. Uh, and so, you know, this is, I think, a classic example of, you know, Chinese investors investing in somebody, uh, somebody they know as well as a business model that they know, right? And and Opay, um, as as long uh, Opay as well as their kind of, you know, sister apps, Oride, um, all of these. You know, Opera, their entire ecosystem right now is just trying to blanket the market in Nigeria, uh, in a number of other countries that they're going into uh, because they have all this investment. And that's making other players who are existing in the market. So, for example, you know, Paga, 
has been in the market for quite a while, uh, and they have about 10 million users, but and they raise their own round, but nobody can compete with $170 million, right? And then and Pompeii uh, is, is within the same ecosystem as you mentioned earlier, Boomplay, um, and the, the Transition um, the transition net ease kind of companies that came out, uh, their portfolio companies, and which raised another forty million. So you're looking at really big numbers that that these companies are playing with because of the Chinese funding, and and only through kind of this kind of funding, you know, they've kind of edged everybody else out, out of the market. So now it's unfortunately, I think, a, a war of attrition. But um, you know, this is what what Chinese, previous Chinese investors have known, right? So many, if you look at, you know, Mobike and, and that entire um, case study within China, it was, you know, spray and pray. Let's see how many, um, how many uh, sub- subsidies we can give our users, how many people we can get on and, and look what happened then. And that's definitely not what we want to happen um, in you know, currently that the battleground is Nigeria if within fintech, um, but I think it's it's something that the Chinese investors are used to, so they're not uncomfortable with it. Yeah, I mean that's very much the Chinese model where you you know Meituan, for example, which is the e-commerce delivery company, burns an enormous amount of money every month, and a lot of Chinese companies are accustomed to burning that money up front in order to kind of gain market share later on, which is reach before revenue, right? That's the old classic Silicon Valley kind of idea. But we've seen that fail repeatedly, not just in China, but in Silicon Valley and elsewhere as well. And so it makes you wonder if. African startups can process all this cash coming in because it's not always easy. Everybody says they want a lot of money, but getting a lot of money always comes with a lot of expectations as well. And so being able to kind of go too quickly on that. I guess one thing I want to, as you were talking about all the all the money coming in, I was curious, how does the Chinese investment, which sounds big, how does it compare to say what others are doing as well, either from other African countries also from the United States. I know Visa has done some very big deals in Nigeria. So how do the Chinese compare, in your view, to what's coming out of Europe, the U.S., and Japan? I think um, if you looked at around mid-last year, there was a report that came out uh, about $450 million had been invested in uh, into Africa by that time when the report came out. Uh, But about a quarter of that came from Chinese investors. Uh, and I think kind of later in the year, especially with with Opay's like major raise of 120 million, uh, then the the Chinese investors basically took about more than half of total investment uh, within the the tech startup world in 2019. And so I think considering you know that it was a blip in the radar, like Chinese investors were a blip in the radar in 2018, that they came in and took over half in 2019 is a huge deal. You know, they came in guns blazing, which I think in, in many cases the Chinese do. Um, and and they and that also scares away a lot of other investors, right? You know, in, in the rounds of fundraising that we've participated in, um, we when we definitely have to think about the dynamics of who's on our cap table already and how we we mediate and you know the the 
the considerations they might be having with the types of investors that we are we're raising with in the future. Um, you know, those are kind of the and then and then how they're going to interact in the boardroom. So you know, talking to uh, my friends at Lori, they're they're really excited about having Chinese investors um, on their cap table because they do bring a different um, perspective. But then you know. How does that different perspective play or play out when you're talking about uh, voting, you know, and shareholder um, shareholder power within and within your boardroom, right? Those are all things that you you definitely have to consider. And and I think when a Western investor is is coming in and looking at that, and they're putting in a smaller amount than a Chinese investor is, they're also making those considerations. And so, you know, that might be something that is making them a little bit more wary uh, as they're making more investments uh, in the space. Well, let's talk about that culture piece, because I think it's very interesting and very important as well. And this was one of the problems that Silicon Valley startups had when they took Chinese money, because the Chinese management style and even the investment style is very different, as you pointed out, not just in the boardroom, but just how CEOs and founders run their companies. And when you take a lot of Chinese money and you've got somebody who's invested a lot of money in your company, they get a vote in how you run the company. Uh, Exactly. How is it that these new Chinese investors who are coming in, uh, how are they acclimating to the African startup culture and the African management method? So if we back up a little bit, you know, as I'm having conversations with these VC guys, one of the things that I, I keep trying to encourage them to do is to spend more time actually in Africa, right? It doesn't matter if it's in Nairobi or Lagos or Johannesburg. They're really just coming in. They're doing, you know, an investor learning journey. They're meeting, you know, a handful of startups. They're zooming in and out, right? And it is so difficult to actually get a gauge of the the types of companies you're working with and even the ecosystem that the the company is operating in if you don't spend a significant amount of time in Africa, right? So I think this is something that they definitely need to consider more of, um, you know, as they're investing. And then so so that when after they invest and they start trying to give advice or trying to, you know, take advantage of those votes that they, because of their investment, uh, they, they're not caught off guard. Um, so, so I think it's it's still a bit early to tell um, how exactly these these investors will interact with or co- you know collide or collaborate either one with existing investors um, and and the o- actual entrepreneurs. But I think a lot of the entrepreneurs who've chosen to take Chinese investment have done so strategically. Right? They know that there's a reason. You know, there's some kind of a business model or partnership or technology that they're seeking um, through get this Chinese investor. And um, and the, the Chinese investor hopefully has very clear goals in mind as well. And if that's the case, then they can, you know, if they can actively communicate, I don't think it'll be a problem. But at this point, I think it, it's still too soon to, to tell um, how, how much of a, of a problem or an advantage this will be. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. 
Follow the ACRP on Twitter at VitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Over the last year, we've seen um, some expansion of e-commerce links between China and Africa. Particularly, Rwandan farmers have started selling coffee quite successfully to Chinese consumers um, via Chinese e-commerce platforms. How do you see the e-commerce relationship developing between China and Africa in the future? In terms of e-commerce, I think this is a hot topic. Everybody wants to talk about it. I still see, so like I said, like I mentioned earlier, um, my company does cross-border trade uh, or cross-border payments uh, in between Africa and, and China commonly. And a lot of our customers, uh, we help do the FX uh, for e-commerce companies um, or for traders, exporters, importers, etc. Um, there is still a lot of issues within the infrastructure side of things. So um, in in Rwanda, uh, Alibaba signed a partnership uh, with the Rwandan government to, to do EWTP, which is uh, basically to help facilitate uh you know, customs and clearance. I think that is still a really, really big um, issue within the e-commerce trade unless you are able to open, you know, have all of the the logistical infrastructure set up correctly, you're still going to have a lot of trouble um, scaling your e-commerce, right? If you look at Jumia and what's what's happened after they IPO'd um, and and the fact that they've now, you know, taken back, they've laid off, they've closed um, different markets, I think that is a perfect case study uh, as to, to what not to do because they didn't consider, you know, the difficulties around infrastructure. Um, and and I think this is something that Chinese companies will often underestimate because infrastructure, roads, uh, you know, quite all of that is is so common and so easy in China. You can plug in or like Jingdong, you can make your own infrastructure versus there are huge blockers uh, around regulatory um, and and customs and clearance and all of those issues uh, within different African countries. <laughs> um, and, and, and at the end of the day, you know, Rwanda is obviously very innovative when compared to a lot of other um, other African countries when it comes to you know technology and new platforms, but they are also a tiny, tiny market. So saying that Rwandan coffee farmers are doing well selling coffee to China is is not very representative to me, right? I think you still need to look at bigger markets, um, South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, um, or different like economic blocks, and see you know if they can come together and and think about like more macroeconomic exporting and, and like that kind of trade, cross-border trade, and then seeing whether or not e-commerce is the right channel to do that uh, versus just trying to sell e-commerce, just, just thinking about e-commerce as a solution and trying to scale up, um, that you'll run into a lot of problems with the government there. What I don't understand, though, is that China and Chinese companies have the experience in that last mile in v- very much developing markets. So, Alibaba bought Lazada here in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Xiaomi is working and been very successful in India. These are markets at comparable development levels of many African yeah. countries. And they've come full on into Asia and Southeast Asia and South Asia, but have somehow hesitated when going into Africa. So why haven't the big Chinese, uh, the bats, if you will, let's see, that's Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, 
uh, and what's the S? There's one more I'm missing. Um, how come they haven't come in in force and brought that expertise, that same type of kind of gusto that they've brought here in Southeast Asia into Africa? I, I also wonder that constantly, actually. Uh, one of the things, you know, you would think that Alibaba would be a lot more aggressive. Alibaba has some great programs in Africa. They have an e-founders program where they, you know, bring African entrepreneurs into China and they train them and show them kind of, you know, behind the scenes how Alibaba runs everything. And, you know, the e-founders come back to Africa and they're so excited and so inspired by Alibaba's story. And and I think that kind of like fully immersive training is is so great. Um, and, and now they have their netpreneurs um, prize, which is um, $100,000 every year over the next, you know, a million dollars every year over the next 10 years. Um, they're doing a lot of things to encourage innovation, but they don't seem to be doing a lot themselves here, right? I think they're, they're maybe being a little bit more cautious because they're aware of how enormous and how fragmented I think that the African market is, right? Just because you can do something um, in, in you know, South Africa doesn't mean that you have Zimbabwe, Botswana, you know, uh, Namibia, everything around it, and you might want those countries as well, right? Um, I think when um, when Tencent tried to come in with, with WeChat um, and they really, really struggled despite the fact that Naspers, which is one of the largest um, African media companies, owns a huge stake in Tencent, um, is because they weren't willing to adapt the product enough. Um, and so because WeChat couldn't really, really take hold, I think Tencent was kind of scared away um, by that as well. You know, I, I'm also surprised that they haven't, you know, at least tried again. But I think maybe they have their hands full, you know, in Southeast Asia, uh, that that kind of arc of, of travel, you know, from Southeast Asia into the Middle East, then finally into Africa. Um, I, I'm wondering if the BATs will take the same same route. And I'm wondering if it's just that they haven't gotten to to Africa yet. It's interesting that to talk about Southeast Asia because in many ways it's a parallel to to Africa. There is no ASEAN strategy. You can't have and right. it's 600 million people in this market. You can't have a pan-ASEAN strategy. You need a Cambodian strategy, a Thai strategy, a Filipino strategy. Each market is different and distinct. And yet, they're here in a very big way, the Chinese. So it shows that there's a willingness, but maybe as you pointed out, they are willing to do it. Just a little bit of context to your your comment about how Tencent didn't want to adapt its WeChat app to the African market. WeChat is a huge app. I think it's it, it's it takes up a lot of space on your phone, and it's also very bandwidth hungry. It's constantly pinging the network, checking for things. And in Africa, where you're paying for your bandwidth uh, by the minute oftentimes, uh, it just drains out, A, your battery, and B, your, your time on your card, on your SIM card. So they weren't willing to do what Facebook did and make a light addition, which was less bandwidth hungry in that sense. And so, as you pointed out, they backed up. Um, I'd like to talk about the elephant in the room. So... I sit in front of Google all day and Chinese sources and, and just putting together the daily newsletter and all the content that we do on the China Africa project. And there is a massive divide in how China tech is covered by U.S. publications and by African publications. Mm -hmm. So in the U.S. publications, it's all about 
Chinese tech is taking over the world. Chinese tech is going to suck data up and send it back to Beijing. They're spying on you. Right. Anything to, to do with Huawei is bad. Uh, and yet, when we t- when we look at the African tech coverage, whether it's in Kenyan newspapers, Nigerian newspapers, it's a lot like what you have been talking to us about. It's on the merits of the business. It's exciting. It's growing. It's on the deals. It's all of that. The security part of all of this is not there. When you have your conversations in your day-to-day world, going back and forth between the Chinese, Nigerian, Chinese, Kenyan, Chinese, African world, how much does these do the issues of security, cyber spying, surveillance, all the things that are common in the U.S. press come into the conversation, or is that really something that's not part of the discussion in Africa? So I'm really excited that you you talked about the press angle. Um, I think even when I first came. Even when I first moved to Nairobi two years ago, I was writing a column for a uh, a, a business daily uh, that was basically myth busting about you know the Chinese people because there was still so much negative press. It was like negative press about the SGR. It was negative press about you know Chinese people kicking uh, you know Kenyans out of their restaurants. Like you know it was still very negative and. In the past, maybe six months, maybe a year, right? You're seeing all of this like more positive. You know, people are talking about Boomplay and Pompeii, and they're so excited uh, about their 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 trenchant phones. They like love techno, and and we've really come 180 when it comes to the press coverage. I think when we're we're talking about the about security and data privacy, it is often. In contrast with what is happening in the U.S. or in the European world, so when when GDPR came out um, last year or two, or two years ago, a lot of African companies really had to to comply to GDPR simply because they either had um, European parent companies, European investors, European partners. Um, they they had so many connections to Europe to begin with. That they had to to put in all of these uh, requirements by GDPR, and GDPR is not, you know, an easy list of um, things to comply with, and it was really costly and really difficult, I would say, for a lot of the the African companies, um, and and in many ways, I would say, kind of needless, right? Um, I think the threshold for what a European wants out of Uh, data privacy is probably different from what an African wants, which is different from what a Chinese person wants, right? And and one of the things that I actually encourage more is to think about,、um, you know, the data privacy within a Chinese regime、um, versus a Western regime, and and even you know thinking about how to customize and and do something in the middle, right? The the problem is when GDPR came out. Um, there were a number of、uh, legal regulations that came out in Nigeria and Kenya, and I believe a couple of other countries as well. There were basically copies of GDPR.、Um, they weren't actually、uh, they weren't actually focused on anything that that. That was African specific or country specific.、Uh, they were just kind of adopting what was. Already existing within the European regulations, and I didn't feel that was fair、uh, to the to the African consumer or to the African、um, the African company.、Uh, I think that the conversation about security is is present, but not prevalent.、Um, it's it's interesting. There's a new building. 
uh, right next to my house called One Africa Place. And when you enter the turnstiles, it is all facial recognition and it is all uh, run, the the hardware and the software is done by Hikvision, right, which is a, a very large Chinese, um, you know, securities company that uh, basically is, you know, mostly owned by the PLA. Um, and when I tell people this, uh, they're completely oblivious to it. Uh, so they just think it's this really cool technology that it's facial recognition when they walk into the turnstiles. They don't, they're not aware of basically who has created that technology and perhaps who owns that information. Um, you know, I think in general, the, the African consumer is a bit... Uh, less sophisticated when it comes to issues around data privacy. And so maybe that's one of the reasons it is not as top of mind um, as uh, as other kinds, uh, you know, Western, maybe in the media, uh, in the West, in the U.S. Um, but overall, uh, I think they're, they're aware of it, but maybe they're just not at the point where they care that much. They're just excited about the technology and maybe the the you know, the data privacy and the security part of it will come afterwards. Well, that's the way we were about Facebook 10 years ago, too. Right. And we've learned since then that we live in a surveillance economy where Google, Facebook, Twitter, all of them make their money on using our data clouds. Exactly. And our data streams about us. And we've learned that there are some very, very serious negative consequences to that. Uh, So I'm just wondering... Is, is China taking advantage of the fact that there's weak governance in the digital space in Africa for things like privacy, for data, you know, data hosting and, and all of the different issues that we are now starting to get on? But by the way, in the U.S., we can't sit on a pedestal either. We're not very good at it because Google sucks up everything that we do. Now, the state doesn't do it. And I think what people's concern are in places like Washington is that the Chinese state is going to have access to this, uh, to this data. Again, we don't know, I don't know, but it is a concern. Uh, from the point of view of investors, do they have any concerns about this? Obviously, the guy on the street, he or she is more or less oblivious to it. But when you deal with investors, is the security question something that comes up or are people just looking at the market opportunity? So just just to go back to what you said earlier, are Chinese companies you know, taking advantage of this? I would say it's not just... Chinese companies, it's also African companies. So there, recently there were some issues around uh, Safaricom, which is Kenya's largest uh, telco, and some of their ish, their you know data privacy and the kind of information they can collect. And not only are they you know the biggest telco with basically ninety nine percent market share, they also own M-Pesa, and so they have all of this data on everybody's spending habits, right? And they actually recently had to do a campaign that was like, Safaricom is transparent and simple and it's made for you um, because there was so much retaliation against this um, against these issues. So, you know, Chinese companies are maybe not the only ones who are taking advantage of the weak digital, digital laws. Um, I think I deal predominantly with Chinese investors and uh, from their standpoint um, and and oftentimes a lot in the B2B space. And so uh, regulation and data privacy around that is a little bit looser. I haven't heard any uh, immediate concerns, I would say, but perhaps for them it is to the the net positive. Um, I think... 
I think, you know, at least the entrepreneurs I know have quite, um, you know, are, have a lot of integrity. And, and if at any point they felt like the, the data that they were collecting from the consumers was being used on unfairly, it would be definitely flagged. Um, but, you know, then again, you have to think about, okay, there's all the, you know, techno has such massive market share. So probably all the data that needs to be collected is already being collected. Do, you know, does the Chinese government need to collect more data through, like, let's say, like SafeBoda or uh, some other app that has been invested into by Chinese investors? I would say the answer is no, right? That seems like a really roundabout way to do something sinister versus they could just, you know, tap into techno, uh, which, you know, I'm sure they already have, you know, deep connections with. Um, so, you know, I think I kind of believe, uh, you know, the the simplest answer is is usually the correct one and um you know these these kinds of concerns um are there but they're not going to i i don't think it's it's really an issue that's like make or breaking any investments currently in the past i got the impression that china was a bit hesitant about cryptocurrencies um now they're launching their own um seen as a direct competitor to facebook's libra cryptocurrency why do you think they made this move now? Um, and do you think Africa is a likely target market for this new cryptocurrency? So this cryptocurrency, uh, it's it's interesting because I worked in, in cryptocurrency for one of the largest uh, exchanges back in 2014 um, up until, you know, 2017 when China was really cracking down. Um, and I remember all the back-channeling and, and trying to understand what the motivations of the Chinese government were. And then finally when they cracked down, you know, it, it killed um, the, the crypto markets. It, you know, it fell from 7,000 to 3,000 basically overnight. Uh, it, was, it was a huge deal. Um, and then them coming back and and making their their own cryptocurrency, to be honest, was not that surprising. I think to a lot of um, a lot of people in in the in who knew China well, right? This is China. The Chinese government doesn't like things they can't control, um, like distributed ledger technology. They are okay with technologies that they have like studied and understood and now have a handle on it, right? So so that's exactly what their um, PBOC coin is, basically. It is, it's not necessarily distributed ledger technology in, in the pure sense of the word because it is completely controlled by by them. And I think that's the, the reason why they, they came back. They would have done this sooner or later. They, they need to have kind of their, their hands in all the pots when it comes to emerging technologies, and, and blockchain certainly is one of them. Um, I, from, from what I've read and heard, it definitely sounds like uh, Africa and other emerging markets, frontier markets, you know, whether it's all of the other um, BRI um, countries definitely seem like a target. Even Libra, right? Libra talks about using um, using Libra to bank the unbanked, um, and there's a lot of market penetration uh, to still be done in Africa, and they're trying to do. And I don't see why uh, you know the, the Chinese government, are, which already have a lot of reach um, in Africa, would not start to try to to you you know scale the use of this extensively. Um, I think it's 
it's really tough when it comes to to trying to get um, uh, African consumers to adopt like such new technologies. But because the Chinese government uh, has so many different arms and mechanisms whether it's companies or think tanks or funds or whatever to actually implement the use of this, uh, it will be significantly easier for them. So imagine how this cryptocurrency in Africa might work, because I've long said that there was no way on God's green earth that companies like Transin were going to put Libra into their ecosystem. It just, it, it, to me, that was right. never going to be a thing, because even though Transin is nominally a private company, it still has a very close and probably a very good relationship with the Chinese government. Having people use money anonymously is not something, as you pointed out, that the Chinese like. So, you know, and tell me if I'm if I'm way off base here. The average African consumer may never know that they're using a Chinese cryptocurrency. What will happen is that inside the walled garden of all the different services now that Transcend's bringing out from you know, fintech services to music to movies to all the different things that they're going to do, the payment mechanism on the back end will be a Chinese cryptocurrency. For all intents and purposes, the front end, who knows how it works? Is that an opportunity for uh, Chinese companies and the Chinese cryptocurrency to make inroads into Africa? Yes, definitely. Uh, at the at Kami's, which was the China-Africa mobile economy summit uh, in Nairobi last year, it really was a showcase for all the Transition and NetEase companies. And I was blown away by how massive their ecosystem is, right? It's not just boom, play and Pompeii. It's it's publishing. It's their iOS. It is, you know, their their own um, mobile browser. It is in an, all their mobile gaming it's an entire world uh, in and of themselves that is on the techno phones, right? And and if considering you know how high mobile penetration is, and considering how important a phone and everything that happens on the phone is to African consumers, it would completely make sense for uh, for some kind of you know PBOC coin or whatever to actually make a move uh, and penetrate through one of these Chinese companies. And when you say PBOC coin, just for everybody who's not following, that's the People's Bank of China and their digital cryptocurrency. Also, to point out, Purist will tell you that because China's cryptocurrency is not 100% anonymous as non-Chinese cryptocurrencies are, even calling it a crypto cryptocurrency is not technically accurate. I want to acknowledge that. We're using that for shorthand. Uh, there is a way for the Chinese to monitor the use of that cryptocurrency. that And that is not a bug, that is a feature of how the Chinese want to do it. Okay, Stephanie, we have taken up too much of your time, so we're going to kind of end our discussion today looking at your crystal ball. You are somebody who sits in all these great presentations. You're seeing what is going on. What should we expect from 2020 in the China-Africa tech space? Is it going to be a more hardware, more VC, more apps, uh, or all of the above? So I, I can tell you what I would like to see more of. Um, and, you know, there there's some industries that are absolutely, you know, growing and doing such innovative things. And I think Africa has a real competitive edge when it comes to those industries. And, and for me, at least, I think that is, uh, you know, sustainability within the, the side of, you know, clean and solar energy. Um, you know, I think those kinds of, of products and startups 
traditionally have done very well, but also have taken a lot of development money just because of their focus. Um, I think it would be great considering uh, China's new, you know, n- not new, but their sustainability focus to come in and bring in a lot of their technologies um, into these kinds of companies in Africa. Um, I think the other space that is also re- really exciting is around ag tech. Um, you know, at the very Base um, basics in China. You know, you you see the way they're using big data to help farmers and even like a seventh tier city, right? And I would love to see Chinese VCs bring in that kind of big data and that that kind of technology uh, and work with with Chinese startups um, in order to with, sorry with African startups uh, in order to scale these kinds of technologies um, in Africa. You know, I think. We in 2019, another year, we kind of like hit the year where we realized we're not at at climate, you know, global warming anymore. We're at global hot. Um, and when you when it comes to um, when it comes to vulnerable populations, you know, Africa is one of the continents that is going to be affected the most. Um, and China, in the last 10 years, has made a big change when it comes to their stance on on green developments. And it would be amazing to start seeing them use and apply a lot of that um, technology and innovation uh, into the African continent. I think one of the ways that we can do that is having, um, having you know, smart green money from Chinese VCs come into come into Africa. Great ambition. This is one of the the areas that we cover you know as much as possible in our daily email newsletter that goes out to we have quite a few venture capitalists and private equity folks on our distribution list who are trying to keep ahead of the trends. Uh, I struggle to 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 find all the information about it. If somebody wants to find out where, you know what's going on in the in the space where do you where do you go to read and and, and find out information? Are you because I know a lot of people ask me like how do I stay on top of everything that's going I, on? I think I have conversations with you, Eric. <laughs> well, that's um, a, that's a circle right there. That, that's what we call a feedback loop. Yeah. Um, I I th- so the China Africa Tech Initiative does put out reports um, around specific topics like uh, green and sustainable energy. Um, I, you know, there's a couple of groups that that are like China Africa tech groups that I, I, you know, stay in contact with. I think it's it's you know one of the things I definitely said I'm gonna I'm gonna do more of in this coming year. Eric is is write articles around China Africa tech uh, for China Africa project so people can stay more updated. There's a big demand for it. I'll tell you, people are really interested in this subject from all sides. From the investment side, from the consumer side, from the security side, geopolitical. I mean, it touches on almost every aspect of life. But it's tough because the VC world to begin with is one that's very private and very closed. You know, investments are very sensitive. And so to be honest, a lot of my my intel just comes from having conversations and making sure I stay updated with people. Uh, but I, I definitely see the need to, to kind of spread this, this information further. Well, that is a wonderful ambition for 2020 because we hope that you will be contributing to us so people can read what you're saying. We've got a couple articles from other VCs on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Stephanie Zhu is the founder of the China Africa Tech Initiative. She's also a veteran of the African fintech space, also in China as well. Stephanie, if people want to follow what you're doing and connect with you to kind of find out more, also just to read what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? 
They can either connect with me on LinkedIn. If you just Google Stephanie Zhu, you will find me. Otherwise, uh, you can sign up uh, to get our reports and stuff on ChinaAfrica.tech. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule in London. A busy, busy day ahead for you, I know. And so we're just so great that we f- grateful that we finally got you on the show. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be on. Cobus will be back with us next week for another edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Cobus Fenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Studinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>